this combination of do the work and don't believe anybody's dogmas, draw your own conclusions after you've done the work. I, I like that approach. Crowley put it into a poem once, uh, which I'm fond of. We place no reliance on virgin or pigeon. Our method is science, our aim is religion. I think that's a terrific approach. Hello, and welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson, those who influenced him and those who have been influenced by him. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. And help us spread the word and find the others by leaving a review, a rating, a thumbs up, or a comment on YouTube. You know what to do. It helps more than you might think. In our last two episodes, we spoke with Antro Ali and Jesse Walker on the subject of Chapel Perilous. In today's episode, I chat with metamagician Philip Farber on magic, NLP, Crowley, and Robert Anton Wilson. Phil is the author of several books, including his latest, High Magic, A Guide to Cannabis and Ritual and Mysticism. He's also a regular speaker at the Starwood Festival and other events. I'd like to note that this is my second conversation with Phil, as the recording of the first conversation was lost when my old laptop crashed and burned. So a big extra thank you to Phil for running it back with me and giving me a second take. And with that said, please allow me to introduce my guest for this episode, Philip Farber. Philip Farber, welcome back to the Hilaritas podcast. Thanks for uh, making a second appearance here. Yeah, my pleasure. We're excited to have you on. We just completed an eight-episode series loosely based on Cosmic Trigger, but mostly the major influences on Robert Anton Wilson. And we wanted to talk about magic and Aleister Crowley, and uh, we didn't really get to it. So excited to have you on today to talk about that a little bit. And uh, you knew Robert Anton Wilson pretty well. How did he first make his way into your life? <laughs> well, I was reading his books, certainly. Uh, I don't know, weird, weird synchronicity. I had friends in, when I was in college who would stay at my apartment and would accidentally leave books behind. I don't know if it was accidentally <laughs> or they wanted me to like find the books, <laughs> right? So uh, among the books that, were, that ended up there were... Uh, Alistair Crowley's uh, Magic and Theory and Practice, and also his autobiography, The Confessions of Alistair Crowley, and a copy of the, the original three-volume set of Illuminatus. Ah. And so I, I dived into all of that, and I was impressed by the, again, the bizarre synchronicities that Illuminatus had all this stuff about Crowley in it. <laughs> well, I was just getting introduced to Crowley. So it sort of reinforced it. I kept, and of course, I kept seeking out more and more Robert Anton Wilson books. And eventually, some years later, probably four or five years later, a friend of mine invited me to go see Bob talk at the Open Center in New York. And I went down, and that was great. And I didn't really get to interact with him too much uh, there. But a month or two later, he did a, a gig uh, with the OTO that the OTO set up in an old dance studio uh, down on Lower Broadway in New York City. 
And that was amazing. Bob was mm. talking about uh, the connections between the tarot, between Aleister Crowley's Thoth tarot and the Eighth Circuit model. And that was fantastic. I don't, uh, there was some, there was a lot of stuff in there that sticks in my brain that I don't think he ever put in the book. Uh, right. But anyway, that was my first contact with, uh, direct contact with him where I got to meet him and so on. And, and also with the OTO. And at the same time, I picked up a flyer there, one of Bob's things that had a phone number on it for the person who was booking his gigs. Uh, it was probably, it was a couple of years later, I guess, um, that my wife and I were, uh, we set up a place called Philemic Arts Center in Saugerties, New York. And Bob was like pretty near the top of our list, if not the top of our list of uh, people we wanted to come to the place and speak and, and teach and so on. Uh, so I called that number that was on the flyer and uh, the, the fellow who I reached got in touch with Bob and uh, we set something up. The first one he did for us was uh, religion for the hell of it. Right. And uh, he became, Bob was sort of our, he was our most frequent guest there <laughs> at the Lame Art Center. And we got to know him pretty well. And he stayed at our home when he was in the area. And then he and I started doing, we did a, a few gigs together about brain machines, uh, both mm. uh, in upstate New York and in New York City, and uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> nice. Any good stories from those times? Oh, <laughs> probably more than we have time for. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, I mean, every, every interaction with him was a good story, <laughs> either one that he was telling us or, or some strange things that were happening there. Uh, later on, uh, Bob, Bob was the one who convinced me to, uh, to start writing books and, and teaching magic. Cause at one point we were talking and he was telling me about all these great gigs he had just done before he got to us. And he was, he was out in Colorado doing a thing with Anthro Ali and, uh, he was in uh, England doing something there and he was, and I was like, wow, I want to do that. I want to travel around and meet all these people. So he said, well, Phil, write a book. <laughs> nice. I was going to ask how he might have influenced you, and uh, I, I wouldn't have expected that. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't. And he actually hooked me up with a couple of gigs early on uh, with people he knew, and he suggested, hey, why don't you get Phil? So uh, uh, that, that was cool. But anyway, I mean, so much like the attitude about traveling around and teaching and presenting, his attitude was very, he was very chill about it. He was really like calm about it. And we would be panicking. We'd be like, oh, we're late for the gig. Uh, we, had, we had set up one gig for him at a, a college nearby. And uh, we're driving him there and we're definitely late. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm having visions of people like getting up and leaving and, and, and uh, the, the college coming around and closing, locking up the room and things like that. And we're almost there. And Bob says, hey, you know, I could use some pizza. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm like, oh, well, Bob, we're late. We got to get there. He's like, ah, they're, they're not going to start without me. <laughs> right. Nice. So, so I, I went ahead and I went to the place and, and, you know, got everybody set up and said, he'll be here. He'll be here shortly. He's, uh, <laughs> he's got a pepperoni fix. He's got to take care of. That's excellent. That's right. That's right. And uh, so, but, but that's sort of like that, that, that attitude of just like being chill about these presentations and, and relaxed about it. I guess by that point he had done so many of them that it was sort of his daily mode. 
but for me, it was kind of a new thing. <laughs> right, right. So very helpful in helping you settle into a new thing. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. And did you ever, I don't know if you ever explicitly talked to him about Cosmic Trigger and the serious experience he had, but I'm wondering what your take on all of that was. Oh, uh, I guess we, we, I'm sure we did talk about that a little bit at some points, but it was probably wasn't much outside of what he had written about it. My take on it is that, I mean, he, he was always kind of an agnostic about it and that he, you know, yes, he had, he would interpret the experience this way, at, you know, yes, aliens, serious. And then at other times he, he didn't interpret it kind of a different way. Uh, you know, maybe it's his unconscious, his higher self, whatever it was that I probably more the, the agnosticism of it uh, <laughs> rubbed off on me than necessarily there's aliens from Sirius trying to contact us. I'm not entirely opposed to that idea either. I actually, uh, I'm a firm believer that there are other intelligences out there and that their ways of communicating are not what we would generally expect. They're not going to call you on the phone, basically. Right, right. I love that. I think uh, it was Terrence McKenna who said something about like the SETI project and, and beaming these radio transmissions out in the universe and how culture bound that was. It's kind of the equivalent of asking them if they had a good uh, recommendation on pizza because it... <laughs> It's just kind of assuming that the, the communication would take place the way we thought it might versus something a little bit more like what we're discussing here, where it's, uh, I don't even know how to use the words for it, but uh, multidimensional, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I personally, one of my operating beliefs, not a, not a firm belief, but one that I, I sometimes use as a magical operating belief is that there are intelligences all around us and, and whether you call it like another dimension or whatever, but our perceptions are so limited as humans that when it's, when we tap into something else, it seems fairly remarkable. Uh, however, to the point of view of other entities out there, they're probably going, Oh, look at those humans down there. Just, you know, twittering away with their primitive computers and things. Right. Uh, <laughs> Maybe they'll get yeah. it figured out someday. That's right. One, one of the pieces that, that recently I've been following is that uh, that thing that passed through our solar system, uh, Oumuamua, uh, a couple of years ago, that, they okay. were, uh, that it was the, the first interstellar object that they ever detected moving through the, the solar system. The um, famous uh, astrophysicist Avi Loeb, who's the head of the Harvard Astronomy Department and so on, he, he firmly believed that it was an alien spacecraft because it maneuvered when it got near the sun. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, other people had other, other, it was expressing gases and it moved and things like that. One of the interesting things about that is that most people looked at it and said, oh, it's a rock, right? Avi Loeb made the point that if we sent a cell phone back, back in time to cavemen, to Paleolithic humans, they would look at it and go, oh, that's kind of a strange rock. <laughs> right. Right. Flat, shiny and, rock make for a good right. skipping. <laughs> and and we're having the same kind of uh, kind of response to this thing that went through our solar system. It's like, oh, you know, it's got to be a rock. That's what we know that flies through space. So, As you said that, I thought of a like a communication satellite, maybe even just this object we don't understand that's that's hurtling through, but checking us out. Right, right. Uh, so 
you know, who knows? So we don't know. There, there's actually a possibility if we can if we can launch a spaceship in the next 28 years, I believe, we could actually catch up to it. Um, mm. So I don't know. Somebody tell Elon Musk. I don't. You know. <laughs> right, right. We'll get him on it. 28 years, maybe we can we can figure that out. So, so the thing then about Chapel Perilous that really resonated with you is how he kind of kept his his multi-model approach. I mean, if I I was gonna say if I remember right, but it seemed like that he carried around at least three or four, if not five or six or more different explanations for what happened to him. And and as I remember, he would often kind of revert to, well, ultimately I decided it was my right hemisphere talking to my left hemisphere of my brain, but, but still would always carry these other explanations around. And it was that multi-model, multi-explanation approach that resonated with you. Yeah, because I, I, I often see that, I think in my first book, uh, Future Ritual, heavily influenced by Bob, I, I made the point that a lot of people, one of the biggest dangers in doing this kind of work is that you have these remarkable experiences and people tend to place too much importance on it. They, they tend ah. to decide that, you know, that thing, that experience that they had was the true and ultimate reality that God was speaking to them or whatever the hell it was. And rather than being agnostic about it and, and going like, well, that was, that was weird. I wonder what it was. <laughs> right? right. Or, or playing with a few different models or things like that. Uh, and, and that is a big danger. I, I, you know, in the, the old psychedelics community, uh, which has which has shifted in recent years, but but back in the day, uh, you know, people would take acid and they would have experiences like that, crazy things where things would talk to them, and they would become, you know, convinced, <laughs> right? <laughs> that that the you know uh, whatever, uh, even even when you get things like Philip K. Dick's exegesis, uh, where you know, yes, there's a there's a solid state Dallas thing that's that's orbiting the earth and controlling human things. And, you know, I, I don't know, I never met Philip K. Dick, so I don't know how firmly he really believed that, but it does seem like he bought into the, into it as a reality thing rather than, you know, a, a model or a, a metaphor or a way of perceiving. Mm, so if Phil, maybe even a cautionary, Phil, Phil Dick, maybe a cautionary tale of getting a little too attached to the story is that, yeah, although although he was wonderful in the way he did that. I, I think, you know, there's a little bit of that in Terrence McKenna, too, where, you know, sure. you have these machine elves and there, and that was definitely an alien spaceship that zoomed down on him and so on. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, right. But but I, I do, you know, I, I do think it's important to to kind of remain agnostic about it and to, you know, to just, you know, have that question mark there, that maybe that really who the fuck knows. <laughs> right. I think even Terrence, I remember one time him saying, hearing him say uh, that he believed whoever had the best story won. So (laughs) in a part, he was trying to promote that best story. Yeah. And he was, he was a storyteller. And uh, I I had the pleasure of talking to Terrence. Uh, I never met him in person on the phone. We had a number of interesting conversations and uh, he would say things like, if I'm right, I'm Jesus, (laughs) but I could be wrong. Oh, you know, wow. he, and he sort of had a sense of humor about it. He realized that what he was saying sounded pretty outlandish and that that it was highly speculative, but <laughs> he liked the ideas and he went with them. Right. And that it was so outlandish that if he was actually correct, that would be a pretty big deal. Right. Right. Exactly. 
I like what you say about play, not to place too much importance because as soon as you mentioned that, I had this thought about the psychedelic experience and how people often seem to get overly attached to the experience itself and how to recreate it rather than integrating the lessons of the experience into real life. And I wonder if that happens in magic as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not so sure there's that much of a uh, of a boundary between psychedelics and magic uh, always. But yeah, I, I definitely. There's certainly, uh, and historically we find that as well, where in some of the old grimoires and things where people contacted an entity and it became a, you know, mm. whatever, uh, the, the be all and end all of what, what things were. And in some of these old grimoires, you find these, you know, hierarchies of entities and angels and and they were pretty dogmatic about it. They were, you know, this is this is the way the, you know, the heavens are assembled for us. On the other hand, people like Aleister Crowley had a similar kind of agnosticism as as Bob Wilson, possibly an influence on on Bob <laughs> uh, adopting that. For instance, in 1904, Crowley had his most famous crazy magical experience, which was the entity Awaz dictated the Book of the Law to him. And at various times in his in his career for many years afterwards, he speculated on what AWAS was. And he had many different speculations. It wasn't always, you know, on one hand, it was his uh, it was an entity from ancient Egypt. And another it was it was his holy guardian angel. Another it was his part of his unconscious mind. And it's very similar to the kinds of models that Bob applied to his serious experience. So, you know, interesting that people. People who can keep an open mind about these experiences are usually the more successful. They, they get to explore a little further. If you think that's, mm. that's the be all and end all of reality, that you just found some ultimate truth, you're, the tendency is to stop there and go, hey, I know the ultimate truth. Right. Uh, let, me, let me give it to the world. You know, but uh, the real explorers keep going. <laughs> mm. I like that. The real explorers keep going. I appreciate there's something about having an open mind and a bit of humility. When I think about Bob Wilson and uh, talking to you and reading your work, there's a certain amount of humility that seems to come with it. Like, let's not make this out to be too special. Yeah, absolutely. And Bob, uh, you know, Bob had a little bit of self-deprecating humor that that would rise to the surface periodically. Sure. Uh, You know, and, and that, I don't know, for me, many years in the magical community, the people who I admire the most are usually the ones who have a sense of humor about it. Mm. And uh, what was uh, Don Craig, who the author of Modern Magic, who was a friend of Bob's and a friend of mine for many years uh, up until his death. He, I'm trying to remember his exact quote on it, but it was something like, you know, we, we deliver this with a sense of humor, but we're deadly serious about the magic. <laughs> oh, nice. That's an excellent quote. And moving back to the skepticism, when we talked about Crowley, I was remembering uh, he has a classic quote, and it's, I could never repeat it, but something to the effect of, you know, whether we're playing with things in our head or we're playing with actual entities matters not. What's important is results. Yeah, he was right. If certain actions are performed, certain results will follow. And he, it's actually a warning to a book called, called Lieber O, where he gives, he says, you know, some of these things may be real, some of them may be not. <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, you know, the, the magician is warned not to, to take them too seriously, but to notice that when certain, certain actions are performed, certain results follow. Right, which is really emphasizing this scientific rep- approach of experiment, of trying it, seeing what happens. And, and I assume repeatability falls into there as well. And- right. Crowley, Crowley fancied himself a scientist, and he, he did have scientific training. He studied uh, chemistry at Cambridge. The motto of his magical organization, the AA, was the method of science, the aim of religion. And although his his idea of science, well, he, he I mean, he was very well read on things, current science of his day, like Einstein. I, I mean, he read and understood Einstein, which very few people did at the time. Right. Uh, but his his application of science was a little bit more personal. I mean, it was more like your magical temple is your laboratory, your, you know, the, the place in your home where you have your altar, that's your laboratory. You perform the experiments and you note the results. And, but that, those are your results. It's not necessarily something that you're going to publish in a peer reviewed thing and say, this is the way the world is. These are your personal things that you, that you've learned about yourself and magic. So taking, um, a very personal subjective experience and applying as much scientific method to it to well, my assumption is just one and in, in a way to, to ground oneself and not uh, get too taken away by the whole process. Yeah, exactly. Now, again, not attaching too much importance to, to the results right away of being judgmental about it, you know, but being open-minded, ultimately to different interpretations and maybe suspending judgment and kind of putting the things that happen on the shelf for a little while, write them down in your, in your magical journal, your magical record and come back to it later. And maybe you'll have a different kind of understanding, which is kind of a, you know, that's a scientific way of doing it. And I think a lot of people get bogged down in magic at this point where they're a little less scientific, where they, they believe that their hypothesis I'm going to perform this ritual and it's going to do this result is sort of a given, right? They, they read it in a book that, you know, I, I do this ritual and the God Jupiter will pour riches down upon me. Then they do it and it doesn't work. And, and <laughs> they don't, uh, I don't know. They haven't really applied the science to it. They're, they, they, they throw it out because their hypothesis didn't prove true. Whereas a, a scientist would, maybe tweak a variable, try it again, you know, and experiment a little bit more and, and right. understand what was go- what was actually going on. Right. The, the phrase that comes up for me is, is to hold it lightly, meaning like to hold your hypothesis lightly. Yeah, absolutely. And, then- and, and you know, in science, a hypothesis isn't, it's what you're testing. And, it, and a scientist is open to it being right or wrong, right? I mean, you have, we have that idea that the idea of an experiment, for it to be a good experiment, there has to be falsification. You have to be able to, to say, you know, there's circumstances where you have to be able to say, no, this is false. And uh, that in a lot of magic, eh, people don't really apply that so much. They either believe it or they don't. Interesting. And, uh, right. There's something about where you formulate the hypothesis, you create the experiment, and then you you collect the data and you you know, take that feedback and you make adjustments to your hypothesis. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's called learning. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. There you go. Well, so when we talk about all this and and it's interesting to me how Crowley and magic and and Robert Anton Wilson all came into your life at once, but 
as we talk about this, I guess my question isn't necessarily what is magic, but maybe before that, why magic? What about? <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe we why need to is define- one of those dirty words in magic? <laughs> is it? Okay. Uh, and, uh, Crowley Crowley uh, has the line, uh, "Why? Because because of the fall of because. That's why." <laughs> Um, ah. and, and we actually echo that in, in neuro-linguistic programming, in NLP, we have this set of questions called metamodel questions to elicit information, and we tend to drop why. <laughs> we tend to not use why, because, because you can say almost anything, right? Mm. Um, you know, uh, why are you, uh, you know, uh, why are you eating that today? Oh, because it's raining. <laughs> Right. I mean, there there doesn't necessarily have to be a, a an actual connection or reason between why and because. <laughs> you know, why did you kill that guy? Oh, because because he made me mad. Right, and not a real <laughs> right. There, there's got to be other reasons there too, because people get mad all the time. So, so let me challenge you a little. Like, why should I care about magic? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. I don't care if you care about that. <laughs> ah, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, well played. The, <laughs> that's awesome. Magic, I, I mean, there's certainly it's the basis of a lot of ways that we can change our consciousness and explore our consciousness and what Bob would call brain change technology, right? There's a lot of fundamental principles in magic that you could pull out and apply in, in many other, you know, psychology and general science and physics and, you know, <laughs> all, all kinds of things. Crowley himself thought of magic as the overarching discipline as and science as a subset of it. So, which is an interesting way to view that. And, and it makes it a little more intriguing, right? Uh, you know, his, Crowley's definition was uh, the art and science of causing change in conformity with will. Mm-hmm. which uh, if my interpretation that is maybe that's more a description of technology than necessarily science, right? It's about doing things and his Crowley's, the main phrase in Crowley's work is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And he always emphasized the do, right? It's about doing things. So I, I never quite, understood the, the the gravity of that or meaning that 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 aspect of Crowley never really hit me until just now but I really appreciate this idea of, of taking action right right and you know causing change in conformity with will again that's a very broad thing I mean uh, if I, I I throw an egg in the skillet and uh, you know I make breakfast I have caused change in conformity with will I've turned the egg into something edible and uh, and I have breakfast. However, more people interpret that as the like the supernatural or paranormal end of that, that that I I will something and then, you know, blam, the 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 bag of money appears on my desk, Uh, (laughs) which would be nice. But but it doesn't (laughs) it doesn't work that way. Right. And there's something about the mystery of the whole thing, I guess, that that strikes me, particularly when we go back to this idea of, of science being a subset of magic. And when I think of science, there's kind of a 
the end of mystery. It's about the known or discovering what's known. And if you put that as a subset, that opens the door for, for the mystery and the unknown and all this that comes along with magic. Sure. I, and I think uh, just the way magic is framed, I mean, even, even the word, Crowley was pretty deliberate about it. He knew that it was kind of a discredited term, even in his day, uh, magic. And, uh, and he, he sort of did that deliberately so that on one hand, people who had a sort of light or, uh, you know, transient interest in it wouldn't get, wouldn't stick around. They'd, they'd go away somewhere. They go, ah, yeah, that's just new age woo woo, or, you know, is, is what we would say today. On the other hand, I think it also left the idea of the mystery open, right? That, that there was a lot more there than we would normally include in what we were describing, you know, science or technology. So, and, and maybe other things that could happen that we don't quite understand yet. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they seem to deliberately, Crowley, it seems like, had a reputation for trying to bring these things kind of out of the closet, so to speak, but yet his writing was still veiled frequently. And even Robert Anton Wilson seemed to lack a little clarity when, when getting into specifics sometimes, as if they just using veiled language or not wanting to expose these big secrets. Is that... Well, uh, in Crowley's... In Crowley's day, for one thing, he took an oath not to discuss sex magic openly. So, so all of his writings about sex magic, which was probably <laughs> at least half of his writings, nice. uh, is, is very veiled. It's all in symbolic language. And uh, because he honored that oath, there were other oaths that he didn't honor. And so you, <laughs> so you sort of wonder why, he, why that one and not the other ones. But, uh, but nonetheless, that was, he always said that was because he took the oath not to speak about that openly. You know, and back in the day, I think there was more reason back in the day where if you talked about things like that, sex and drugs, you know, wow, that was, you know, those were the things that got him branded as the wickedest man in the world and so on. Nowadays, right. we go like, oh, yeah, you know what? <laughs> you know, we read about celebrities who, who practice tantric yoga or, or magic or, you know, or study Kabbalah or things. And we go like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> um, right, right, right. I mean, because in some of our modern things, you know, I mean, that's that almost seems less weird than, say, Scientology or <laughs> or or some other religions I can name that are even weirder. So, uh, but talking about sex back then, you know, forget it. That that made you evil. It was not not something that you did, and. It was a way of protecting the organization, I think, more than necessarily keeping magical secrets. Ah, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, even uh, I guess this is a similar time frame. Sigmund Freud was starting to talk about these things and was persecuted and and yeah, sure, yeah, and, and right. We do see other thinkers and writers back then who were persecuted for that. Right, had to and they had to tone it down or just kind of navigate those waters carefully. So we've got Wilson has discovered Crowley, he's discovered psychedelics, and he's really diving just whole hog in this brain change technology. It seems like he he nearly uh, lost his marbles, so to speak, in the in the thick of all this. Is is there a tale of caution to be had here? <laughs> uh, sure. I, <laughs> uh, the caution is that when you get into these kinds of things, yeah, you're going to open up some stuff that maybe you're not prepared for. And that Chapel Perilous experience is, it's probably more common than most 
magical traditions presented as. There's even a phenomena some years back where people were going to yoga classes and starting to sue their yoga teachers because they were having these overly intense and, and even traumatic experiences, which are basically, you know, dark night of the soul, crossing the abyss, chapel perilous kinds of things uh, that were happening. And in those contexts, the teachers probably were not trained to deal with that. Right. In magical traditions, yeah, we're a little bit more trained to deal with that and maybe to expect it a little bit more. You're even even taught in like the Kabbalistic tradition that there's there is this part on the tree of life called the abyss, <laughs> which is the the disconnect between the, the the world that humans experience and the absolute, which mm. which we don't necessarily experience. But the the crossing between the realm of human senses and experience to get getting glimpses of the absolute can is traumatic to some extent. And, and, and it's there on the tree of life. <laughs> this is the abyss right here. Uh, and, and there's other, you know, in, in a lot of traditions there, that's, that's discussed and people are prepared. And uh, there was always a tradition of having a teacher or a guide similar to what we do now in psychedelics, where there's, you know, usually a qualified guide, uh, hopefully uh, in, in the newer therapeutic sense of, of using psychedelics. You know, set setting and sitter. Sure, right, right, absolutely. Nowadays, it's set and setting and the therapist. <laughs> right. You know, and and there's good training for that, and we find that in other. I mean, I'm trained as a as a hypnotist and neurolinguistic programming, and in hypnotism, that's one of the first things you learn is dealing with ab reactions. Right. It's when you know when people start to heal or or they start to explore or get into their unconscious mind. Man, they you know, there's shit in there. <laughs> you, you open up a can of, of very nasty worms sometimes when you, you start peeking behind the veil. Yeah, you uh, compared Chapel Perilous to Crossing the Abyss, and that really struck me. I never had, had equated the two, but I considered Crossing the Abyss to be a pretty advanced magical operation. I guess just the magnitude of the whole thing hit me when we well, equate those uh, all right, two in, things. In, Magical traditions, all right, and we, we tend to think of that as most of our concepts of magical advancement come out of the Golden Dawn Society, where mm -hmm. the, the, the different stages of initiation were based in the Kabbalah, and you would move up the, up the tree and eventually cross the abyss and become the Ipsissimus or whatever the hell you, you became at that point. Um, <laughs> however... That's, that's the formal levels of initiation. Kabbalah really suggests that we're, we're kind of doing that stuff all the time. Mm. Uh, we're, we're bouncing back and forth between, uh, you know, reality and experience and, and so on constantly. And there's, there's little abysses that we cross, you know, moment to moment, day to day and so on. So yeah, it's, it's sometimes, uh, in, in the golden dawn sense, yeah, getting to that state of initiation where you reach that level where you symbolically cross the abyss. Yeah, that's a big magical operation that takes many years. However, oh, wow. in the normal sense of things, having your eyes open, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say being woke. I hate that. But the <laughs> <laughs> having your eyes open to, to a reality of a situation is crossing the abyss in that momentary sense there. Mm. So, so there's a spectrum of from 
being a minor irritation to, to a full-on dark night of the soul. Crowley himself talked about his, his experience of crossing the abyss of lasting for, I think, a couple of years and, and that he was absolutely horrible to everyone around him and, uh, and, and acting out and just terribly angry and, and so on until he came out the other side. And one would assume that he's claiming that he got calmer and wiser and so on. Right. Kinder, gentler Crowley. Yeah, right. The kinder, gentler Crowley at that point. And Wilson mentioned that one either comes out stone cold paranoid or agnostic. Wilson, when he uh, made his way through Chapel Perilous, he, he remarked that one would either come out uh, stone cold paranoid or agnostic. Yeah. And that actually jives with what Crowley said was that one either came out enlightened or became a black brother. You, you turned evil mm-hmm. and, and, okay. uh, and set about attacking the, the, the people who you thought were your enemies, which I would assume is a form of paranoia. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. So yeah, I, I do, and and I think again we're having that we're we're sort of bumping up against this thing where people have experiences and apply too much importance to them, <laughs> right? Right. If, if if you come out of one of those experiences thinking that the, you know, and I have had clients like this thinking that the, uh, the Illuminati or the Masons or or the fill in the blank are are conspiring worldwide against you and and so on. Yeah, paranoia. <laughs> right. I want to say that that Wilson quoted Israel or Guardian saying that that often in the magical practice, people opened up their sixth chakra, their power chakras, before they opened up their heart chakra. What that brings up for me is a line in Cosmic Trigger where he says, perfect love casteth out fear. Oh, okay. All right. And I, I think having that, uh, if in... In magic, we tend to think of love as a little bit differently. Uh, and love oh, is that is the thing that connects, that, that brings things together. Crowley's line was, um, uh, we are divided for the sake of love. Right? That, that the reason that, that, we are, that we experience ourselves as separate is to reconnect, is to have those experiences of reconnecting. And in terms of like modern psychology and so on, that's sort of coming back around where we're finding that it's that sense of social support and having connections with others and people that you love and so on that keeps people out of trouble, out of addiction and, and depression and so on. Uh, and, you know, uh, let's see, Regardi was, he was trained in psychology and he was a therapist. He was a psychotherapist. So his, you know, definitely, you know, bias in that direction uh, in, in his interpretations. Yeah, but I think but, that's really a powerful thought, though, just that I'm starting to take a look at modern psychology and the eight circuit model. And we talk about the, the first circuit and feeling safe in the world. To me, that what we're learning through attachment theory is that starts with connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So what what would you say to someone that's interested in, in experimenting with magic? How what would be a, a good way to go about it? No, don't do it. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, uh, the, the way to do it would be to, to you know, start small. Um, the, the typical, in, in, actually, let's see, in, in these traditional organizations that we've talked about, the Golden Dawn Society, the AA, the first thing that people learned to do was the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Right. And, and you had to get really good at that before they taught you anything else. <laughs> and there's, I'm not necessarily saying that the, 
the the lesser banishing ritual is the thing to do, but learning self-protection and grounding techniques first is probably a good idea. Also keeping that agnostic frame of mind that, you know, uh, you're, you're observing things, you're experimenting rather than necessarily, you know, oh, I believe this and this is what's going to happen and so on. So an attitude of exploration and experimentation is, is good. That's what Crowley was always trying to encourage that. I don't know that he was successful always, but certainly in people like Bob Wilson who read his stuff, that's what they got out of it, I think, mm-hmm. that, that more scientific approach. Yeah, Bob's very nature seemed to be to continually question things. So you just have that curiosity and that scientific mindset right off the bat. But a lot of people, it seems like they have a an aha and they feel like they've got it and they run with it. Right. Bob was trained in science. He studied physics and so on. Mm-hmm. So he had he had a good grasp of that. Actually, just a little a little piece of of Bob trivia is that something I did not discover until I had been friends with Bob for for many years was that Bob and my father studied physics together at uh, Brooklyn Poly. Oh, wow. And and they knew each other. And and, uh, at one point I published a a poem. I had a a little zine that I published called New History. Uh, This is in the early 90s, I guess. And I I published a poem that Bob had given me to publish. And, uh, And my father read it. He's like, it's like, oh, Robert Wilson. Uh, I, I knew, I knew a nice young man named named, named Robert how Wilson. Who studied physics at Brooklyn College. I was like, yeah, that, that was him. Oh, so, how funny! Yeah, small world. Yeah, well, I, I know that sort of sort of blew me away a little bit. It was like, what? Small world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I wonder if you. I noticed that you gave a talk, I believe, recently at Winter Star on evoking wonder. Yes, and. Uh, that's come up for me as we've been talking a couple of times now, like just the wonder of a small world, but also like curiosity about, you know, intelligences beyond our own, whether they come in through uh, comets and, and asteroids. But I don't know. Tell me about evoking wonder. <laughs> OK, well, I think, you know, when we're kids, everything is wondrous because partly mm. because of we don't know things. Right. And even the simplest stuff, you know. Does the light stay on in the refrigerator when you close the door? I mean, that's kind of a magical and wondrous thing when you're when you're five years old. You know, I'm sitting here now. I'm in. I live in upstate New York. I'm looking out the window. I have a beautiful view of, of a forest and trees, and and I have I have this sense of wonder about everything I see out in the forest. There's trees that are communicating with each other. There's there's animals who do mysterious things. There's I, I have this sense of wonder about nature, and I think we tend to have this educated out of us at some point where we do think things are wonderful, where we're fascinated by even when you're a kid, the, the tiniest thing, a blade of grass is magical. And you, you could spend hours looking at it and so on. As you get older, you start taking these things for granted. And, and we start being taught that things around us are more important than wondering and, and daydreaming and being excited about the world. Uh, you know, it's like, no, you, better go and make some money or, you know, you better, better pay your bills today and, and so on. In a sense, we tend to frame our sense of wonder as a distraction from these daily tasks that we have to do. Whereas I, I tend to think of it the other way, that these daily tasks are a distraction from the sense of wonder that we could be feeling at almost everything that's in front of us right now. 
the thing I did with Winterstar, we did a, a trans induction where I guide people into some of their memories of wonder and, and also experiencing wonder at the things that are around them that maybe they've, they experienced at one time, but have sort of put on the shelf or forgotten. So it's, uh, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a fun kind of little trance experience that I'd worked up. Uh, there was a video from that that will probably get posted to YouTube at some point when when I have the the time for a major upload. Nice. I just have this image of uh, childlike curiosity and innocence. It's almost like suspending the world without judgment and just viewing it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I it's yeah. Judgment is the term there because we we tend to look at things and then make judgment. Say, ah, oh, that's just yeah. You know, uh, you know that that's just something that's not important or or whatever. Whereas keeping an open mind about things is it, it opens you again to wonder. Mm. Yeah, open mindedness. Yeah. Tell me uh, um, how you you have quite a lot of training experience in NLP. How would you say you or neuro linguistic programming? How do you blend that with magic? <laughs> okay. At one time. Uh, uh, we asked Richard Bandler, one of the, the co-founders of, of NLP, what's the difference between NLP and magic? And he sort of shrugged. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, it's a form of, you know, causing change and conformity with will. And Bandler and Grinder, uh, the, the co-founders, they actually framed a lot of this and used the metaphor of magic or what people thought they were using as a metaphor. Uh, the, the actual first two books on NLP were called the structure of magic. Oh, that's right. Uh, they were about more about Chomsky's transformational grammar and, and were kind of books about linguistics more so than they were about, you know, performing magical ritual. But there, there is actually one side of magic in which we, we do study was called the uh, dominus ling lingua uh, where we, where we do study the effects of thought and language on our, concept of reality. That's sort of where NLP dives into that. Uh, the way that we experience and phrase and frame our thoughts and communications is very important to our sense of what the world is like and, and mm -hmm. how things work and so on. Some of it stems out of the, uh, the Worfian hypothesis, which is that your, uh, your language strongly influences your, your sense of the world. The, the, the big pieces of NLP, NLP was sort of, you know, one of those things where a number of traditions had sort of come together at the same time. It grew out of a, a gestalt group that Richard Bandler was uh, running at the University of Santa Cruz. And uh, the, the big pieces that sort of joined together were Chomsky's transformational grammar, general semantics, and Ericksonian hypnosis. Mm. And... When I when I first met Bob, uh, he was very into he he knew quite a bit about Ericksonian hypnosis and was had been playing around with these hypnosis tapes that Carol Erickson Eric, Erickson's daughter had created, and also and obviously fantastically brilliant on the subject of general semantics. So it was sort of a natural for Bob to be interested in that. There were already some big chunks there that he was he was already thinking in that way. So let's see, uh, in, in terms of magic, uh, they, they dovetail very closely. Uh, again, NLP was one of those things just around that same time that I uh, had been turned on to Bob Wilson and Aleister Crowley within a, within a year or so was, of that was when I first 
came across NLP. Uh, so it's sort of, I'm thinking about all these things at the same time and I'm going, well, you know, we could, we could take NLP and we could take some of these magical rituals and techniques and we could really kind of tune them up a lot, <laughs> right? We could, we could change the language. We can do some things. We could use some hypnosis techniques and, and we could really amp it up. However, when I said this to some traditional magical people in the organizations I had been coming in contact with. They're like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> danger, danger. Right. So of course I had to do it. <laughs> don't cross the streams, they said. That's right. That's right. And then so you went right for it. That's yeah. Awesome. And and there there's a lot. I mean, I don't think I could fit a full, I mean, I've done <laughs> entire week-long <laughs> uh, seminars on this subject of of the crossover between NLP and magic, you know, suffice it to say, if you, if you pick up one of my books, uh, that's basically what they're about is, is applying okay. NLP into uh, magical settings and rituals and so on. Would it be, as, as I say this, I, my alarm bells are going off, but would it be safe to call NLP linguistic magic? Maybe that's an oversimplification. Yeah, probably an oversimplification. <laughs> yeah, that was my although, alarm. Although bell. I think Bandler, Bandler would probably like that. Okay. Certainly when I think about Robert Anton Wilson, that, that he had a, a certain mastery with the general semantics and just kind of a linguistic magician, the way he could uh, turn your world inside out and bring you back again with his writing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was something that was of great interest to the NLP community. Bandler would invite Bob to come to the events and basically Bob would do his thing. He'd get up and do, you know, when you ask Bob to do a lecture, he, he might give you a, a, a topic ahead of time, but when he got there, he'd basically talk about whatever he felt like talking about, right? which was the fun of it and the surprise and, uh, and so on. So Bandler would, would invite him. He'd get up in front of uh, the, the group of NLP students and he'd do his thing. And then, Afterwards, they would break it down using NLP techniques and study how he did his linguistic magic, right? Because oh wow, right? Bob's Bob's stuff was always I, I'm you know I still go back and I watch YouTube videos of him doing this stuff because there is there's a magic trick that he did where he'd be talking about these incredibly diverse subjects and then like pulling a string or snapping his fingers or something suddenly it would all come together and you'd have this aha experience like. Whoa, that's what he <laughs> that's where he's going with this. He, he his understanding of the way people would uh would parse his language, I guess, was so keen that he could he could frame things in a way that would lead the the listener or the reader, you know, to that point of having their own aha rather than him just telling them the the you know the fact, right? Right, right. That leading the horse to water instead of you know, giving him a drink kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. And that, 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 uh, boy, I would love to see a recording of Richard Bandler and a NLP students breaking down Bob's talks. That would be amazing. I'm not, you know, if you check on uh, purenlp.com, they might actually have some, some DVDs of, of that, basically to help out Bob near the end of his life. They were selling a bunch of his, his recordings, you know, his own stuff, his CDs and, and DVDs. But I think they may have also included uh, one or two of the ones that he, because Bandler videotaped everything that he did. So right. um, 
they they do exist, whether or not they're selling them or not. That, yeah, I've seen uh, a fair share of recordings out there, but I've I've not listened to many of them, and it would be interesting just to hear some of those specific breakdowns. That would be to see if there's anything out there. Switching gears a little bit, the brain machine thing seemed to be a what a big deal in the the 80s, I guess it was, maybe the early 90s. When we did this, it was probably, oh, from about 88 to 91. I okay. Guess, when we were doing the brain machine stuff. And it seemed like that was a field that had a lot of promise. Has, has anything caught your attention since then? You know, not so much. I, I think a lot of the, the, te- the technology that was developed from that stuff, I mean, some of the stuff back then was absolutely fascinating. But some of the more specific technology that was developed out of it, I think it got locked down in, in a medical context. There's stuff like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation that neurologists and neuroscientists will do with you in their office, but you can't just get a TMS gun and play with it at home. And you wouldn't really want to because you do need accurate imaging. <laughs> you know, you, you need more medical stuff to have to accurately target brain areas and things like that. So it it maybe evolved a little bit out of the the range of what we at home DIY practitioners uh, uh, might do. I don't see too much in the general in the general market. Uh, Michael Persinger had a uh, there's a commercial version of his God helmet that's out there called the Shakti helmet, but that's been out for some years now, and I don't think it's really evolved either, other than. The whole concept of transcranial magnetic stimulation coming out of that. Uh, is that the God helmet as a magnetic device? Is that? Yeah. Uh, Persinger was experimenting with uh, these weak magnetic fields that would go over the temporal lobes in, in this helmet that he created. And people would have very intense out of body, alien contact, mystical experience kind of things uh, when they used it. Some people famously didn't. He, 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 he would invite thinkers and famous people into his lab to to try it out and the famously i believe it was richard dawkins had absolutely no experience on the how funny <laughs> it's kind of ironic yeah it's a little ironic uh, <laughs> and fun but but again this is all sort of like late 20th century technology and i'm not really sure it's it has evolved much past that uh the thing that has evolved though or that was rapidly evolving past that point was new psychedelics. And there's so many more psychoactive drugs and psychedelics that are available these days that it's bewildering Mm. (laughs) and maybe even a little freaky and dangerous too. Yeah, I'm not terribly aware. I'm a little in touch with the nootropics community and it seems like they're always experimenting with some new compound for enhanced, you know, creativity or memory or or things like that. And uh, it seems... The experience, self-experimentation that's going on in that space seems pretty wild, but I'm, I'm not as aware of the psychedelic scene. There's a, there's a continuing introduction of new chemicals into that scene. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there definitely is. The, I mean, that all started in late 20th century with Alexander Shulgin's books, right. where he published the formulas for phenethylamides and tryptamines. The, the, the at-home chemists and the, uh, and also the chemists in China, the underground chemists who, who make this stuff and ship it to the United States, they got into those. And, and then the underground chemists really saw that, well, there were a whole lot more possibilities beyond what Shulgin had done. 
Mm. Uh, Shulgin had suggested that even, you know, he certainly had not exhausted the, the range of things that could be created. So there's, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy things out there now and too many to even try or explore, I think at this point. Uh, I mean, there's things right. out there like, like one P LSD, which is a, you know, supposedly a, a, a slightly different form of LSD that, you know, who, who knew? <laughs> right. You know, and what's the difference there and what interesting. Sure. That's but, right. And, and, and with the tryptamines, I mean, uh, at, at one point, you know, we had, we had our, our mushrooms, we had our ayahuasca DMT, you know, but now there's, you know, a, all of Shulgin's whole range of tryptamines. And then there's, a, then there's another whole set of them that have come along too. So crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Even just thinking back to, to brain machines, there's the electromagnetic stimulation and there is also uh, one thing I've seen that's that's more like you said, it's kind of co-opted by the medical field, maybe by necessity, is neurofeedback. And a lot of those machines or that technology is, you know, being applied to depression and ADHD and things like that. But if we were to apply that technology to maybe consciousness hacking in, in various ways, what would that be like? And then you have all these chemicals that could be. It seems like there's a whole lot of possibility out there. Yeah, absolutely. I, um... In, in NLP, we make a distinction between remedial change, you know, fixing problems, and generative change, which is basically exploring and growing. Okay. And, and magic is more about generative change, right? It's more about, you know, evolving and going forward into your future with new skills and resources and understandings. And, you know, rem- remedial change is more what the, the medical and psychological communities deal with, which is you know, you, you have problems in your life and, you know, you need them resolved so that you can go on and continue to be a good consuming American. Uh, so, you know, some of that gets a little silly the way they pose it. And even Milton Erickson, who on one hand, he, he taught us all to, to be open to accept other people's models of reality. That was a very important mm-hmm. point in Ericksonian hypnosis. And yet he would still impose this idea of what a healthy human, his idea of what a healthy human should be (laughs) Mm. married with kids and having a house kind of thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, eh, you know, sometimes a little, little discrepancy. He he never quite, quite got out of that model himself, I guess. Uh, But nonetheless taught us all how to, how to help people do that. Yeah. So this idea of remedial versus generative really hits home for me. As a therapist, I find a lot of people will come seeking therapy because they're in pain and they just want it to go away. And then other folks will see that this is an opportunity to grow and they'll, you know, they're not just trying to get rid of the pain, but they're trying to grow through it. And uh, sometimes I think the folks that are in pain and just want it to go away don't really know any better in, in a sense that they can actually utilize this for, for growth and permanent change versus just kind of like taking an Advil and getting rid of the toothache. Right. Uh, because we, we do, we do grow up in, in that remedial paradigm in this culture. And, mm. and we're not really taught that there's things beyond that. You know, the, the, there's always that, you know, there must be something more moment <laughs> uh, when, when people have paranormal or, or unusual experiences it sort of opens up a crack and they, they say, whoa, if that can happen, maybe there's, there's a wider world out there that I haven't quite, quite figured out. But most people never get there. Most people are, are kind of locked in their, you know, their day to day. Right. 
and, and again, trying to get out of pain rather than necessarily move beyond it into a, a lifestyle or a, a, a way of thinking that it doesn't happen again. Right. And it seems like it's, it's not it's not that they're afraid or that they're uh, they just don't know any better in a way. Yeah, that because it's not sense. something that that's taught in our culture. Right. Like, you just, yeah, I've never thought of it like that. I guess I'm still soaking that in. But that makes a lot of sense. It's just people don't think of it that way. All right. Well, Phil, it's been a, a great hour here talking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to, to say while we're here together on Hilaritas Pod? Oh, I, I guess just the, the the general Crowley debunking that he he uh, his his reputation as the wickedest man in the world is somewhat undeserved and also a sort of some of his his own self promotion. Um, right. Uh, he he sort of put that up as a barrier to prevent dilettantes and lightweights uh, from looking into what he was doing. Uh, unfortunately, it backfired on him and and. Uh, he never quite got there, but, it, but some of those, that blind still works, right? It's uh, there's still a lot of people out there. I, some of my Amazon reviews of my books on there is like Phil spells magic with a K like Aleister Crowley. So he must be an evil Satanist. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I, I love that. And uh, unless you get a review like that on your book, you're not a successful magician. So, <laughs> so that now you've made it Crowley maybe purposely or maybe inadvertently blackened his own reputation as a, as a way to. Well, I think he, he somewhat cooperated with the yellow press of the day who were, you know, again, their sex and drugs were pretty wild things back then. And he was bisexual, which was like, you know, Whoa. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. You didn't talk about those things back then, you know, so he was sort of able to, to kind of cooperate with their slander of him. Although at one point he did he did go to court and try to defend himself uh, somewhat unsuccessfully. Mm. Were there specific things you wanted to debunk about the man? Or oh uh, well, let's see. <laughs> yeah, where do you start? Uh, apart from the evil Satanist thing in in general, no, he he wasn't. He was he basically had very I, I don't know he had good intentions for humanity. He was he was about evolution. Mm. He was about the human race becoming better and and understanding more and get, and uh, actually getting along better and so on uh, a lot of the, the the slanderous stories about him that he he killed one of his students by magic and he would sacrifice people and animals and eat babies and kill babies and you know whatever and a, a lot of it was very silly stuff some of it came out of misunderstandings of his his symbolic language about sex magic right uh, in one place he talks about his slaughter of millions of innocent young men. <laughs> Basically, he was talking about masturbating. And disposing right. Of sperm. <laughs> right, right. All these, all these un, unfertilized babies going to death. That, that's right. <laughs> and he probably thought it was fantastically funny. Yeah, Crowley had a very <laughs> twisted and subversive sense of humor that not everybody gets or appreciates. Right. Maybe a little schoolboy sense of humor. Blended yeah, definitely in with definitely it all. a schoolboy sense of humor. Well, I appreciate that framing of just good intentions for humanity. That really resonates with me is, a, is a, a nice way to frame it. One of Crowley's motivating things was that he believed that we were about to enter another dark age uh, mm. in which fundamentalist religion would obscure the advances in evolution and, and reason that humans had made. And a lot of his motivation to write and to put all his knowledge in these volumes, particularly his 
magical encyclopedia of the equinox was to preserve that knowledge through the dark times. Okay. And I don't know if we've gotten there yet, but <laughs> things, uh, yeah. the last uh, five years or so, things are looking a little <laughs> like they yeah. were heading that way. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that's what came to my mind is, is, uh, you know, five years ago, I would be questioning whether or not we got there, but now I'm starting to feel <laughs> right. like maybe that's uh, happening. Well, as you, we talk about this, what occurs to me is it's just even bringing up the word occult triggers a lot of preconceived notions and in, in people that don't really understand it. Like it is devil worship. I think of all major religions have like an, uh, an esoteric, mystical, spiritual practice side to them. And in a sense, Western magic and occult is, is our Western spiritual practice, but it just seems to be so, it's, it's got a, a cloud over it, I guess, is what yeah, I'm Yeah, the, 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 the fundamentalists use the, they use the word occult as a pejorative. Mm. Um, but really what it means is hidden. And most people take that to mean as, you know, the magicians and their secret societies hid this information. That's the way you see it in movies, right? There's some, some secret book hidden away somewhere. But really, it refers to the things that are hidden in plain sight, the things that are right in front of us in the world here that we just don't perceive because of our limited perceptions and understanding uh, and so on. And we're going back to that evoking wonder kind of thing, right? Yeah. All of this stuff is here, but our brains hide them by distracting us, by taking us away from the moment and, and so on. So uh, the occultist is actually kind of peeling back that veil of consciousness and maybe perceiving things a little bit more clearly and uh, maybe getting some information from, you know, non-ordinary sources, let's say. Fair enough. I love Non-ordinary sources hidden in plain sight. I love that. Well, Phil, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you. I, I've been uh, reading your work in, in preparation for this, and I've, I've found an enormous amount of clarity in your books that I don't normally find or get when I, I study magic and occult. And I really appreciate that in your writing, um, the clarity and the humility. And so I would certainly recommend anybody interested in magic to go out and uh, study your books. And um, no, again, it's you. been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, always a pleasure. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Big, super extra thank you to Philip Farber for taking the time to talk with me not once, but twice. And thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Rossa of Flaritas Press and the Robert Anton Wilson Trust. And thank you to our engineer, Ryan Reeves, for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of August, will feature Eric Wagner on Beethoven. Until then, I'm your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. My name is Alistair Crowley, because that I am holy. My enemies say Crowley wish to treat me foully. So now you'll never forget how to pronounce it. It's Crowley. <laughs>